America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. And so I want to make sure that people realize that millions of people have died for this country. And what we have now is because millions of people's blood was shed uh, and they did not get to live their long lives. They did not get to have their grandchildren that we remember why we have it so good. And it's not because of me. It's because those like Major Rosenberg who gave that sacrifice. Episode 32, Joe's American Story. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Joe James. Joe, welcome. I'm very grateful that you are here. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Tina. It's a huge honor to be on this. The honor is all mine, believe me. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? Can you share with us a little bit about you growing up and what led you to join the military? You know, I joined in uh, 2000. So a lot of guys my age, you know, were probably greatly affected by like the GI Joes or different TV shows like that. But I was really affected by my my family members. Uh, A lot of my family served in the military. My uh, father was a Navy corpsman. And my grandfather was a Navy CB. And of course, uh, well, he fought in World War II. But of course, I joined the Army because I wanted nothing to do with the water. Actually, a big joke in my family was is that if it ever hit the fan in the Navy, uh, you know, the ship sinks, you're done. Like, you're in the middle of the ocean. But like in the Army, if it hits the fan, you can go behind the rock, you can go behind that tree, <laughs> you can get that truck, and get the heck out of here. So I always tell them, I was like, yeah, that and that waits me sharks and ah, not my life. Did they feel betrayed at all that you did not go into the Navy? Nah, nah, I think they understood. <laughs> I, think, I think, yeah, I think you kind of agree with me on that one. Yeah, Naval battles, are, I'll leave those to the, uh, the best and I'll leave that to the Navy. How old are you when you joined the military? I was uh, just turned 17, where I can legally sign up with parents' permission. See, I'm originally from Washington State, so I was born in Bremerton, and I wanted nothing more than get away from home. Uh, I wanted to be gone. And ultimately, of course, I just wanted to serve my country. So as soon as I could, as soon as I graduated high school, I didn't even have a summer. I didn't have a summer job. I just went straight to basic training. I cannot believe how many of you tell me how young you are when you joined. I think of myself at that age, I was petrified about leaving home. Oh, really? Oh, are you kidding me? Absolutely. And you wanted nothing more than to leave home. Yeah, well, okay, you know, like growing up the way I did, with, you know, the family I had, they're great, but I wanted something better. I wanted to get out of that town, and it's a small town in Washington, and I knew there's nothing there for me. So I wanted to go off on my own and to really experience the life. I even talked to somebody who I didn't even know that this was available, that he went to basic training between his junior and senior year of high school. I've heard of that. I, I, I think maybe a guy I went to basic did that. That always blew my mind too. But the hardest part is they got it out of the way. I mean, that's the easy part. They got that out of the way. So once they graduated, they just go to school. Where did you go to basic training? Uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. That's the home of the field artillery. And I was a 13 Foxtrot, a Fort Observer. And how did you find basic training? You're a young kid. 
Were you nervous? <laughs> Were you apprehensive when you stepped off the bus and people start screaming at you? The biggest problem I had was the heat because I went from Washington State, which is the, one of the most northern states we have besides, of course, Alaska and the other north, northern states. But I arrived from, I, again, I got, I got on a plane. It, it's, you know, has air conditioning. And then you fly to uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And then you go on that little jet bridge. When you go from the plane, you can feel the heat shooting through the little seams on it. And I remember walking into that heat going, why is this so hot? It's like an oven. That's putting your head in the oven. And then uh, from there, we uh, went to a lot in Oklahoma and it was just miserable. I hated, I hated the heat more than anything. Basic training part, I think as long as there, there's a saying in the army, be in the right place, right time, right uniform. And as long as you did that and you know, you only got yelled at the same as everybody else. If you messed up those three things, you got yelled at a lot more than everybody else. But, uh, no, I, I, I loved it. I, best thing to do is just to do what privates you're supposed to do. Shut the heck up, uh, listen, you know, and learn and, and be involved. Yeah. I think once I had that all down, kind of the shock world is over. Cause you, again, you're not doing this by yourself. Actually, you may be suffering, but so is everybody else. And you kind of have that camaraderie, that brotherhood. And you know that, Hey, you're not the only one suffering and it makes it kind of easier. Had you been away from home before? Uh, when I was like 16, I took a train to Oregon to visit my dad, but that was about it. Like I never really left home at all, but I was one of those types that just, I, I'm not a homebody. I wanted out. I wanted to get to something. And so that was just right up my alley. Before we officially began this podcast, you said your grandpa had mm -hmm. a big effect on you. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah. Um, so like I said, my, you know, my grandfather was a CB. Uh, he fought in World War II and there was some bad stuff going on between my mom and my dad. So there's kind of a bad divorce that was going on. So we had to live, my brother and I lived with my grandparents for a bit. And he's one of the hardest working guys I ever met. I mean, he's a retirement age during that time. He's probably in the seventies, I believe. And that guy ran his own uh, lumber mill. Like he's falling trees, cutting them up, through a sawmill and here my brother and I little jerks you know but put to work every day so even if it's picking up sawdust or moving boards or going out in the woods and bucking limbs off of trees you know we were always working he put us to work if he didn't we would literally break stuff and destroy his shed or his shop but so yeah growing up uh, I would hear some stories from him about World War II a lot of it was hard for him uh, a lot of anecdotes because he was on the invasion of Guadalcanal so he was one of the he was a CB, so it's construction battalion. And so those are the guys doing the airfields. So when their pilots would be taken off to fight the Japanese, and the Japanese would bomb the airfield, they had a whole routine and system, even while they're getting shot at, changing plates in the runway. So the planes can go up there and fight. And by the time they were to land, the airport was all fixed up, even though it was bombed. You got to tell me a lot about, not a lot, a lot of veterans don't usually, especially combat veterans, don't really go into too much detail. But my grandpa did open up on some stuff and it really it was about not so much the action of it, but it was the sacrifice of it. Talking about some of his friends, how he died, talking about how he got injured, Japanese strafing the beach and they died in the tank tracks that would be dug into the, the beach. So, I mean, you hear stuff like that and then like President Kennedy, you know, he was, always talks about ask not what your country can do for you, but we can do for your country. And those kind of talks resonate with me. You know, I always tell people, I said, well, I couldn't serve, or if I joined the Army, I'd punch a drill sergeant, or whatever. I'm one of those guys that say, 
not everyone's meant to serve, but we're all meant to serve in a different way. So find out what it is that you're called to do. Find out what it is that you, you are meant to give back. Because life, I think, in my opinion, is about uh, lifting up others. And no matter how that is, however you can do it, as long as you find a way to do that, the head, nail on the head. I'm 51 years old and I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> and I, me too every day, don't worry. <laughs> After basic training, where do you go from there? Okay, so after basic, of course, and I'm going to include the schoolhouse where you learn your job. Once you're done learning your job, no matter what it is, go active duty. Active duty, you go to your first duty station. If you're National Guard, you'll go back home or reserve. And so for me, the first place that I went to was in Kentucky. I was happy that it wasn't Fort Lewis in Washington. I didn't want to be stationed there. I wanted to be as far as I could be. And so, yeah, there is where you kind of realize the Army's not like basic training looks like or sounds like. It's better. And you get to learn even more things and get to learn from really great leaders and from bad leaders, too. My first duty station taught me what it's like to be a good NCO, but also I've been around a lot of bad NCOs and officers. So I really just kind of shut up and paid attention. I counsel new soldiers going in the military. They ask me, like, what should I be doing in my duty station, you know, when I first get there? And I honestly said, shut up. Just listen to what they say. And then I tell them, volunteer for everything. I know it's contrary to what a lot of people talk about, but I did. I, I, when I was young, like 18, 17, 18, 19, I volunteered for every detail or task that would be thrown my way for a couple of reasons. One is it gets me into new locations and places and to learn about new, new things that I've never experienced. Like it could be different S shops, commo or operations where a private normally wouldn't be going into, or it's pulling weeds out of the motor pool parking lot. I mean, it's- You um, really you did volunteer to... for anything. Yeah, well, I mean, they force you to. It's called being voluntold. Right. But the other benefit besides that and meeting new people, that would greatly affect my career later on. They're like, hey, instead of being a private, like, oh, I don't know where to go to for X, Y, Z, I could be like, oh, I just met them last week because I had to sweep their floor. And so I, I would build contacts that way. And the second reason was is that when you volunteer for uh, lots of stuff, they stop asking you to volunteer and they won't ask you to volunteer anymore for a long time. So yeah, yeah, by the time you get burnt out from doing all these crappy details, you kind of you don't get asked anymore. So I, I told Matt, and the other thing, I, especially in my first duty station, is to learn about that one level above you. What is your boss or your supervisor doing? What do they know? Why are they doing what they do? Ask questions, learn. That because, you know, in the military, you're going to have that job sooner than you realize. So instead of just hanging around the bags, playing video games or whatever, start understanding what's expected of you on the next step. And so I, I did that. And when is your first deployment or was there only one? I don't know. Well, I was in, of course, in 2000, so before 9-11. And so at that time, uh, I was at Fort Campbell. I was like E-nothing, like E-2, E-3, something. And I remember when 9-11 happened, there was really two types of people that I saw. It was those who, were, uh, who joined for college, especially at that time. You joined, they're not necessarily the most hardcore soldiers you know they're like oh, i'm gonna do my four years and i'm gonna get out and my college is paid for and then the other type are those who definitely serve those that you know no matter what happens i'm in this you know i want to honor and i want to take care of my country i met a lot of long faces a lot of 
big eyes day when 9-11 happened. They were talking about deployments going to Afghanistan. And a lot of people that I was really great friends with freaked out, like going AWOL or they're like, oh man, we're going to get killed. You know, they're just not mentally prepared. And then you had guys like me and my, some of my friends, hey, let's do this. Let's bring the fight to the enemy. I'm, I'm sick and tired of getting walked on. And a lot of people died that day. So I'm ready whenever and I'm willing. And then we did. We deployed uh, one of the first units to Afghanistan in early 02. I remember the day that happened. And I'm wondering what it was like for you already being in the military because I didn't know what to think. I honestly thought, oh my gosh, is this World War III? Because that's what it felt like. I remember where I was. Where exactly were you when you heard about it? And what were your thoughts? Actually, I got a funny story about that. Okay. <laughs> we just finished uh, PT, physical training. And I remember seeing the, the TV in the dining facility. And I remember seeing the plane crash. And, and again, I don't really think I paid attention because I don't usually watch TV. I know there's a lot of people who are talking. And that early, when it was the first plane, it wasn't that. It was a huge deal, but not like end of the world, World War II type thing. We didn't world know war, yet. Yeah, not really. Yeah. And then I remember um, I finished around 7.30 and then at nine o'clock, we actually had mandatory training. We all had to do equal opportunity or something along those lines. And I remember our first sergeant came in and says he needs two volunteers. Um, of course, I raised my hand and I wanted to get out of the training too. So I won't lie. <laughs> but, uh, and I want to know what's going on because it seems like a lot of people are stressed out. And, uh, so me and my buddy, we volunteered. We go to battalion staff duty, and everyone's surrounded by the TV there. And that's, I think, I either saw the replay or I saw the second plane hit. Kind of fuzzy for me now, but I remember seeing it impact. And then thinking, holy crap, there's something going down. And of course, privates being privates, everyone's talking about, hey, man, I heard that there's a, a, a water evasion on the East Coast. I heard the Pentagon was hit. I mean, all these different things. There's an airfield uh, outside of Fort Campbell. And they're talking about, oh, I heard that there's a hijacked Cessna, and then they're going to crash it. You know, you heard everything. And so rumors are everywhere. The funny part of the story is the first sergeant wanted two guys to guard the arms room. Now, keep in mind, that's where we keep our weapons, but it's in like a safe. It's a locked door. There's gates. You can't walk into that place. It's all secure. So it's, I, I want you guys to, to guard this door. And then the only thing he gave us were like Maddox handles, which are like axe handles, like wooden handles, like baseball bats. And I remember me and my buddy were talking, we're standing there BS. And then I was like, yeah, somebody invaded Fort Campbell and somehow magically pushed all the way to the middle of the post where this unit was. Yeah, we're not going to do anything. I mean, we have wooden sticks. You guys don't carry your guns with you every day then? No, no. Actually, in the military, uh, most of the time, unless you're training, they stay locked in the arms room. Okay. Uh, and that's just a safety issue, and those are sensitive items, and you don't want private snuffy walking off of them. When we did ramp up the uh, security on post, we would carry, but we had a sergeant that had our ammo, and we had the weapons, so if we ever had the lock and load, we were able to, but... Were they letting us walk around with loaded weapons? No. But later on, when we were doing guard duty on the gates, we were able to uh, ramp up the amount of uh, weapons and ammunition we had. Okay. You go to Afghanistan, and when did you say that is again? Uh, early 2002. I think March. January, March, April. Yeah, March or April. No, it was March. It was March 2002. Tensions are pretty high where you're going, right? Is it a nerve-wracking yeah, situation yeah. to fly into? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, 
growing up with like war movies, you kind of have an, an expectation, especially, you know, Vietnam movies. And you think it could be a hot LZ and the enemy's going to shoot at you as you land. We landed in Kandahar Airfield in Afghanistan. Well, we were in a giant plane, like a C-17 or C-5. Did it come down in the circle? They did more of like a combat land. And so what they do is it's a shorter airfield. And so if I remember right, when it was landing, it kind of did a hard, a fast land. But then they put on the engines on reverse. So we're sitting here like, just flying forward, leaning forward. And then I remember thinking, I was, oh, bullets are going to come to the side of this thing. I mean, they just land this middle of combat. And then by the time we unload, we're in the middle of garrison. You know, there's like an Air Force dude without a shirt on. <laughs> there's water pallets everywhere. And I see a bombed out airfield. This is not what I thought war was going to look like. <laughs> but again, it's like the special operations guys, like the Rangers, special forces, those guys, they took over the airfield already with like the month prior. And so we were just shuttling in the main body of conventional troops. So by the time we got to land there, there was not much uh, fighting going on on the airfield. It was outside the wire. It was scary being young and stupid, but it was also like, oh, okay. Later on, I found out my other deployments, 75, 80% boredom, and then like 25% action, 20, 25%. Most of the time, you're not doing much. But when you do, you do a lot. Such a foreign place. Did it look really foreign when you flew in? Well, compared to what I was used to, yeah. It's, it's a lot like, I would say, southwestern United States, a lot drier climate, hills. There was a place in Afghanistan called Bagram, and they actually got a lot of snow. And, oh, really? Uh, I uh, had no yeah. clue. Yeah, so up in the higher elevations, you get snow. I didn't wasn't there really for the cold, because again, we got there in like March, and we left like six months later for that deployment. So you got to see a lot of poor infrastructure. There was no... A uh, real organized military threat against us besides the Mujahideen, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, those guys. But even then, it's not like they were conventional forces. So, yeah, that was a bit different. We had to get used to it. And then uh, another thing we had to get used to was working with other coalition partners. So, like, England was there. So, I've had a lot of great stories about working with the Royal Marines. We had a, a soccer game on the 4th of July in Afghanistan near uh, Kaus. And we, it was the first time we beat them ever. And so it was on the 4th of July, so there's a lot of mad crap talking about how we beat them on the 4th of July. <laughs> does, it, does it remind you of anything else? We're all brothers in the same kind of conflict, so we're all brothers talk crap to each other. Did you see any action in that first deployment? Uh, okay, well, yeah. No, there was a lot. In the beginning, our first real mission for my unit, because we're what you call QRF, Quick Reaction Force. And so we got our very, very first mission was uh, the British... S, no, the, sorry, the Australian SAS, Special Operations Team, was under attack. There were troops in contact, and we were the quick reaction force for that area of Afghanistan. So we had to prepare. We had to, when, when you're in QRS status, you can't go anywhere. You have your uniform ready. You have your, all your gear all ready to go. Because at a moment's notice, within like five or ten minutes, you're on a helicopter heading towards the fight. And so we did. We got to call in the Australian SAS team was under attack. They were being surrounded up in the mounds three hours away from us. So they said, we're going to brief you in the air. And they did. It's, of course, it's loud in Chinook. So, you know, we had a lot of yelling. And I remember how scared crap was. I was, no, I was. about to ask that. Yes. Your drill yeah, no, must have been pumping. Because, okay, yeah, you can train as much as you want. And I was, I was with the 101st, one of the best units in the United States Army. 
I was a third brigade rocket son and we trained extensively for stuff like this air assault operations, you know, CQB uh, entering buildings. We were ready. We we're more than ready for the fight, but we're still young guys who have never seen combat before. And I remember uh, they said it's going to be hot LZ, hot LZ. And then part of air assault operations are like five minutes. And signals, you can't really talk. Like in the movies, people are like whispering to each other on helicopters. No, you can't do that. And then I remember one minute and then the helicopter starts flaring doing a combat flare on the mountain and then i remember just like locking and loading my radios on and then my helmet ready to go and i remember thinking this is it this is where i'm going to be getting fired as soon as that ramp drops down ready and we we all dove out did our security around the helicopter and the helicopter takes off and you want to talk about scary you're three hours away from any other conventional forces just you and your company and your ride just left you Imagine your Uber taking out in the middle of the Badlands. That's how it felt. <laughs> and then, uh, so we get in a 360 degree perimeter around the helicopter. That's what you do. You fan out and then your weapons are up. You're, you, you get on the, get in the prone and the helicopters take off. And then now it's quiet because the rotors are all gone. And uh, we're expecting fire at any moment. So we're, we're looking around, we're scanning. I'm on my radio talking to people. And then all you hear is this like Australian voice. Hey. Where the heck have you guys been? They left like an hour ago, and they're in that village over there. <laughs> Did you have to pursue them in the village then? <laughs> and so they're like talking bad smack about us. Yeah, so that was our follow-on mission. We went down to the village, and we routed out the enemy, found a lot of weapons, mortars, uh, guns. So we just stayed room by room, building by building search. And so it wasn't that bad. It was, in my mind, the scariest, most crazy thing I've ever done. And then I look back and I was, no, I built that way too much up. That was way too tame. Nobody shot us, in, you know, when we landed, like I thought. And uh, it turns out that's what kind of like combat's like. Um, you think it's going to be the worst thing ever, and it's not. It's pretty chill. And then when you think it's going to be routine and relaxed, and it just hits the fan, and now you're reacting. That's why you don't blow it yet. You always think everything is going to be the worst. And then you prepare for it. So when it does happen... You're not like, oh crap, I forgot, uh, what do I do? No, you already have that running through your mind. Is there a point on that first mission before you get there mm -hmm. where you're paralyzed and you're thinking, I can't do this, I can't do this, I just want to hide behind a rock? I would no, think you just want to hide. No, it's, uh, I think the, the Army does a good job preparing you. A lot of our training is uh, brainwashing to some level. Yeah. Uh, in basic, you know, we'll have things like what makes green grass grow, blood, blood makes green grass grow. They desensitize you to violence and war, and they make a lot of these things muscle memory, especially when it comes to reacting to contact, how you bring your weapon up, how you pull the safety. So all of this is muscle memory. And so by the time it happens, you've trained it enough and you've experienced equivalent things enough where when it does come, it's like a normal situation. It, you don't really, really uh, freak out. Now, does your body want to freak out? Yeah, and, um, it does, because it naturally wants to do the fight or flight. It wants to protect itself mentally. But what you do is you trigger your body and your brain enough where it actually hinders that fight or flight, or that flight ability, and you just go straight into it. Basically, the, the concept is, is that if you Think of the beach of Normandy. Your buddy gets shot in front of you. You could have just had a cigarette with him. You could have been gone to his wedding two years ago. But when he gets shot, you know that you're the next man up. That enemy has to be neutralized or everybody's dead. You don't have time to think about this right now. 
you can't contemplate that your buddy just got shot. You just keep moving. And then once the enemy's neutralized and the threat's taken care of or whatever it is, the mission's complete, then you can start really assessing the emotional side of it. And that's why a lot of veterans have a problem. They've been hindering that emotional side and limiting that because it's a, it's a life or death thing. If you allow yourself to freeze up, you could die or you could get somebody else to die. And you don't want to be that person on the team. You don't want to be the wink wink. I just spoke to Todd Nicely. Do you know who he is? Mm -hmm. Todd Nicely is one of the five quadruple amputees. And he mentioned that PTSD, why it's so prevalent is because at the time when all that's happening, you can't stop. You can't contemplate what's going on. You can't try to deal with it because... Otherwise, you're going to die. You're going to cause somebody else to die. And he talked about right. that, how it wasn't till after even he got out of the hospital that he started to deal with it. Yeah, and we're not prepared to deal with it. We're trained to handle the stress of war, but we're not trained to handle the emotional impact of it. And so for most of us, these feelings of guilt and, and, and loss and pain, we've been trained to push it away. But when actuality, the best you can do is face it head, no, you know, head on as best as possible to work through it. That way you can have a functional life when you get out. Get through Afghanistan in that first yep. deployment. You're okay. What's the second one? Yeah, uh, so I finished that one, and then we come back for a bit, and then I go to Iraq in 03. We invaded I Afghanistan, and we invaded Iraq. We were one of the very first troops on the ground. Of course, the Marines hit Basra, which is just north of Kuwait. But we air assaulted in to southwestern Iraq on uh, Black Hawk helicopters, our whole unit, the whole brigade. Actually, my battalion was out there. But the uh, first mission was to go to Baghdad International Airport or Saddam International Airport mm, at that time. Yeah. So while we were sitting in the desert for a bit, we got word that the one of the tank divisions of Saddam called the Medina Division was heading our way. And here we are, light infantry. We had maybe some toes, but not very much. And being a fire support guy, my job was to control artillery, mortars, attack aviation, jets, any like helicopters. So I would be the guy on the ground communicating with things to, to make them go away. And so the only asset I had at the time were like mortars nothing that would even scratch a tank. And so I remember thinking how kind of worthless I was in case of a straight up tank versus light infantry fight. And uh, luckily our Apaches wiped them out, the whole division. And then so we got word that we were going to fly into Baghdad, air assault in to the airport and secure it. That got nixed because we had some jets. Uh, I think we had a jet shot down and then one of our helicopters was shot down. And so we had to drive north on um, Tampa. And I remember that's when we got our first real fight in Iraq. We had some big fights in Tora Bora during that whole thing in Afghanistan. We were chasing down uh, Anaco Operation Anaconda. So all that stuff was going to Afghanistan. So we did see combat already. But in Iraq, it was our first time really hitting a conventional force, a more conventional force. They had tanks, they had equipment, they had larger numbers that were more on par with the U.S. And I remember our first firefight, our first engagement was an ambush. We were pushing forward a whole light infantry battalion, and we had armor support. I think it was 3rd ID gave us like a tank in the front and two Bradleys. And I remember uh, Bradley in the back, and then like, I think a tank and a Bradley in the front. And we're all in on these troop transports called LMTVs. And we're all, the side of the vehicle's here and we all have our weapons out. And you know, a whole light infantry battalion on the move. 
and we got engaged from our right side, the side I was on. They fired mortars at us and they small arms fire. But I remember we were all so tired, angry. We're sitting in the back of the truck and it's hot. And we all just like a whole life time just opened fire on that uh, palm grove. There was some miscommunication, I think, because the vehicle stopped and you never stop in the kill zone. When you engage somebody in, in an ambush, you, what you're supposed to do if you're being ambushed, you fire and then you get out. You, you get out, out of the way and then you maneuver onto the ambush. And so well, I don't know what happened. Trucks in the front stopped moving. I don't know. Uh, but we stopped in the ambush kill zone and we we're just laying in walls of steel, just, you know, lead, just firing on the enemy. And I remember there was the, the palm groves to my left and then a, an open field, like a farm and then a house on the right. We're all shooting at the palm groves. And then we see this guy squirting, what we call squirting, but he's running from the palm groves to the open field to the house. He's trying to run to the house we're firing at this palm grove and then we all see this guy and we all shifted fire on him and so you see like dirt flying everywhere and this guy is like trying to jump dive and, and get out of there yeah he only made it like half the light because we wanted to take him out yeah so finally I, if i remember right the abrams and bradley's got into the fight and they just basically they pivoted on the road did a right turn and hit the berm and just went into the palm groves and just destroyed everything and then yeah then we pushed north to the airport you know what? You are the first one that I have spoken to that was there in the Middle East in the very heat of it. Oh, really? Yes. Everyone else that I've spoken to, it's been more like 2007, 2006. Oh, you mean the yes. Yeah. You're there right when things are really hot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was fun. <laughs> it was good. It was, I mean, it's a scary experience. There, there's many things I still carry kind of with me. Not so much the violence. The violence actually doesn't bother me. No. Nope. And probably brainwashing. But the awe. I remember one night we were driving, and it, it was that, I mean, we're driving for like a day or so to push you north. A day, probably a couple of days, actually. And I remember the first night, we're all just exhausted, tired, and we're all in the back of the truck. And, and this is before the ambush. And I remember seeing in the distance um, tracer fire, like, thousands of looks like laser beams all shooting up in the sky and you can hear coaxes and machine gun fire and we know that they're right over that hill not too far from where our road is that they're engaged our uh, u.s forces are engaging with the enemy it's just a huge beautiful battle like like almost like fireworks but you know that people are dying over there and you know that you're next because you're pushing not away from the enemy you're pushing towards the enemy so you see for me at least this is my point of view i saw that and i was i was just mesmerized it's like the most beautiful sunset but it, it was literally just colored tracers going everywhere i'm finally in it i did a lot of fighting in the mountains of afghanistan but this is the one where i knew that i was going to be taking on a larger force and for me being a young 19 18 19 19 at the time for afghan for, for iraq yeah i was pretty scared but again i'm not alone i have people with me people i've trained with people who know my skill set and i know their skill set and we are all dedicated to make it home so and you know what it's wacky about this whole thing is that you and i are probably seeing the same things like i'm seeing everything that you're seeing on tv because i don't know i'm sure you know it that at home it was non-stop it was yeah. on all day and we're watching it live. We're watching, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, I didn't have TV when I was pushing North. You know, they don't review. You know, but, yeah, by the time I think I was able to sit down and see news, uh, it was well after we took most of the country. Okay. It's not all the country over. I can remember in some sick way I was, and I'm sure a lot of people were too, kind of addicted to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's they haven't seen anything to that level since the, the first Gulf War. Uh, and a lot of my senior leaders were Gulf War veterans, and even their like their old leaders were Vietnam vets. Actually, I ran into a Vietnam vet that came out of retirement early '02. He uh, he flew a helicopter in Vietnam. He was a warrant officer, CW5, and he he told me that he crashed his first helicopter in Vietnam, and yet here he is back in uniform. <laughs> that was kind of funny. I was gonna say those are the last real big combat experiences right. for the Vietnam. Yeah, they have combat experience in Gulf War, but that was only like a, what, a week. But so the last real big one was these Vietnam vets. So they brought some of them back from their experience. You make it through this one unscathed and you go through your third deployment. Where's your third deployment? Uh, Iraq. The last two were Iraq. I want to say around 2005, 2006 timeframe. So okay. it's like a year gone, year home, year gone, kind of like that. Okay. So you're going back over a wide, a wide period of time. Yeah. Is there a time, I guess, let's see, how do I ask this? Like the first time that you see some, and I don't want you to go into detail, but something that's yeah. ghastly, that just is shocking, that you see someone die or that, I mean, because it's, it's a bloody place to be mm -hmm. that kind of freaked you out. Yeah, yeah. Like, are you talking about like what's what's like a really big memory for me? Yeah, like, like before you're yeah before you're injured and it like it makes it real. Yeah. It, I mean, it's all real. But when you see that for okay. the first time, that's got to cement something in you to see that. I don't know if I'm a psycho or something, but pushing north during the first deployment, the first real dead person I saw was I think. A civilian or maybe no I think he was a military guy but he was in a civilian vehicle it was an Iraqi and his vehicle was destroyed and he was blown in half and I remember stopping on the side of the road and a bunch of you know the infantry guys we all went over and basically like checked out a basically dismembered body and a lot of us made jokes and laughed about it thought it was hilarious and like poking like the intestines with sticks you know really nasty stuff right and so I remember this female truck driver She's the one that was driving the vehicle north, and she come out to see what we we're looking at, and she saw him, and she she vomited on the side of the road. And I remember thinking the stark difference between those who are combat MOSs like us, who are used to more of the who ha we all had combat patches, most of us, because we went to Afghanistan prior to that. So most of us have seen combat; it wasn't that big of a deal. But for those that have never seen death and destruction, it was very traumatizing. But I think. The worst thing I've ever experienced, I think for me, not I'll open up, it was actually a, a little girl. This guy came up with his daughter to where we were. We had a little, uh, a little compound that's secure. And this guy brought his little daughter, probably around four, three years old. And she's mangled. Her arm is pretty much burnt off. But the crazy thing is, I think it was an accident. Like she fell into a fire or something. I don't know exactly what happened, but he came up to us thinking that we can do something to help her, that we can save her. My medic being really distraught over it. And I remember being distraught over it. And the only thing we could do, because literally we were just an infantry platoon there. And all we had were a medic bag. 
gauze and things for like trauma, but not anything that a kid that age needed. And so we did the best we could. You know, her arm was destroyed, but we wrapped it up the best we could. Crazy thing is this kid barely even cried. I mean, she had tears running on her face. She was hurt so bad. And I remember how strong she was and how tough she was. And I remember that destroying me more than any of the death and violence I saw in any of my other deployments, including losing friends. And I remember just seeing this kid and I was like, she didn't ask for war. She didn't ask to be born in a country that Saddam tortured. And that village that we were in, how he would come in the middle of the night and his, his secret police would take family members and dads and, and they would never see him again. They would gas his own people. And when you hear this stuff, and then it kind of solidifies why we're in that country. It wasn't about oil or any of that garbage. I mean, maybe the president had that. I don't know. But as a soldier, for me, it was defending these people that were getting stepped on and, and murdered for decades because of Saddam. And so I remember that destroying me for a long time, seeing that little girl. And I still see her face today. So I've experienced the worst you could ever go through. I've been injured. I lost both my legs. But even to this day, that little girl kind of haunts me. And I, I swore that I'll never let another kid suffer like that. And I mean, I'm doing the best I can, I guess. Well, you brought that up, Joe. That's our segue. Let's talk about that fourth deployment when your yep. life changed, right? My fourth deployment, I'm now E6, uh, Staff Sergeant in the Army. So I had a cushy job. I finally made it up so I can work at Brigade Talk. You know, All that volunteering time. paid off, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> when you get promoted, you no longer have to dig ditches and fill sandbags as much as you used to. And so I remember having I had a cushy talk job. They're like, yep, fourth deployment. This, this time I was with the 3rd Brigade of 4th ID out of Fort Carson, uh, Colorado. So it was my final deployment. And they, they said, hey, we, we arrived in Kuwait. And they said, hey, we need volunteers or you're being volunteered to be on a, a new type of uh, a team that we're doing called the MIT team. It uh, stands for military, was it military transition team. And what we are, are military advisors and experts that help train the Iraqi military. And because I was so skilled in a lot of the stuff, especially fire sport and I'm heavily combat experience, they wanted me to help, you know, be on the team. And they're all like senior people, like E6 and above. So you had some officers and you had a, a major um, that who ran the team, a guy named Major Mark Roseburg. And so they volunteered me for that. And I remember telling my buddy that in Kuwait, we're outside talking. I remember I was like, dude, this is it, man. This is the one right that I get, I get whacked. I'm going to get killed. I told him, I said, I was prophetic. This is it. I was safe in a freaking brigade talk. And now I'm going out on the front lines with Iraqi military to have to train them. Were you whistling to the graveyard? Did you really feel like this was going to happen, or were you joking? I know. I, I, I felt terrible. Like, I didn't want to leave. It was my fourth time. I, I did three combat deployments before that. I was happy where I was. I was like, I, I also, like, dude, yeah, was I being pessimistic? Yes. But I meant that. I was like, this is not, I feel bad about this. Like, I don't want to leave the wire anymore. I'm done leaving the wire. And so, um, yeah, it was Six months into my deployment, training at different Iraqi militaries and things like that, and we were coming back from a mission. It was April 8, 2008. And how long did you say you've been out this time? Six months? It was six months into that deployment. The mission was, uh, during that time, there's a place called Sadr City, just north of Baghdad. And uh, he had his Mahdi Army, Mahdi Militia. And these guys were doing a lot of bad stuff. They were uh, setting up IEDs, um, killing just bad terror stuff. And so we had uh, the, the main 
push was to surround Sadr City and to stop the flow of arms coming into Iraq and stop these bombs from being made and killing U.S. service members. And there was more to it, but our mission was to uh, support the Iraqi army, and their job was to push forward and get in blocking positions and set up a perimeter. And you've probably seen some of the movies, like uh, that Chris Kyle movie where they had the T-walls being put up. That's where I was. Yeah, so we, we had some contacts and uh, some post calls that night. The early, early that next morning, we were up all night doing stuff. And it's like, hey, let's go back to our base. Let's go refit. And we're going to go shower, get some food, and then get right back out. You know, So we, we're going to go head back and do what we need to do to be is ready. This, is this April 6th or April 7th? Okay, so April 7th was the day we were pushing. And then early the morning of April 8th, we were heading okay. back. Okay. And we got permission you know, to head back. And I was in the major's truck. I was his gunner. So I was on the machine gun uh, a little bit higher up. So if I'm sitting in the gunner seat, the next helmet was going like this right. level to me, you know, on the major's helmet, you know, to my right. And then the gunner, the, the driver was my left. And so, yeah, we're coming back early that morning and we got hit by roadside bomb. It was called EFP, explosively formed penetrator. Basically think of like a cylinder, like a coffee can, copper plate but it has a copper plate uh, that caps it. And what it does is fill full of explosives. And so when it's fired, it blows that copper plate off and makes a penetrating slug and it punches right through our armor. And so it, from the right side of the vehicle, it went through my boss, Major Rosenberg, went through my legs and right out that back left door without even slowing down. Our armored doors are foot thick. I mean, they're, they're really heavily armored. And this type of explosive goes right through it. You said it went through the the major, and then it went through you. Yeah, Major Rosenberg died from his uh, his wounds. Um, what do day. you remember then when that hit? Do you remember anything? Uh, well, yeah, I was awake the whole time. I was when we travel, our guns are oriented a certain way. So when you're in a convoy, the, the guns will face opposite ways, so you don't have all the guns facing left or all the guns facing right. And so I was facing to the left and I was communicating with the other gunners and drivers and we're just talking, paying attention to the road. But the blast came from the right side. The best way I can explain what it's like to be hit is imagine you're looking at a picture on a wall or a calendar or whatever and someone sneaks up behind you with a two by four and then cracks you in the back of the head. You had no idea they're there. You had no idea what's happening. You had no idea to expect it because everything was going smoothly. You were doing everything you're supposed to. It still happened. And then, like for me, I found myself on the bottom of the, the Humvee uh, on the floor. And I, you couldn't see anything. There's a lot of noise. The Humvee, I was told later on, slammed into a berm because it knocked out our driver. I remember the sounds. Uh, I remember uh, Major Rosenberg. I remember how I knew he was hurt real, real bad. And I remember hearing our interpreter, a guy named Eminem, who was right next to me on the back right seat. I remember, I think he was yelling and crying in Arabic. He got seriously injured too. And then I remember feeling pain, but not really knowing why I'm feeling pain. And I remember trying to sit up because I had my vest on, all my ammo, all that stuff. And I'm trying to sit up and I couldn't sit up. And I'm trying to figure out why. And then when I did that, the rest of my limbs came up and I saw the blood. I saw that I was missing my legs. And I remember thinking, I, I need to tourniquet now, because if I don't tourniquet my legs, I'm going to die, because both of my femoral arteries were severed. So and, both uh, your legs so I, were blown off then? There wasn't, yeah, well, okay. 
I don't know how gory you want. I'm not trying to make this disgusting, but uh, most of my left leg was gone. That little bit was still connected, but my right leg was completely gone. When I mean by connected, like a little bit of skin, I mean, not much. Honestly, though, can I stop you there? I do not know how more of you just don't pass out at that moment. Why well, you don't I'm, pass out? I was about to. I was about to die. I was because I started getting tired. I, I realized that I was dying, and so I needed to do something. So uh, it was basically like a uh, like a heavy sleep coming over me. And so I uh, started tourniqueting, and then I realized that it wasn't going that well for me. I, I mostly tourniqueted one leg, so I started to crawl out the back left door as best I can with my arms. And then I went to go try to throw myself out of the truck. And by then, the other bunch of the other trucks came up with that was in our convoy, and they're one guy actually caught me as I was trying to throw myself out and he grabbed me and carried me to the back of the truck but at that time especially in Iraq they um the enemy would do what we call a complex attack where they will initiate an ambush or attack on us with an IED or an RPG and they're, they're trying to disable a vehicle and then they'll use small arms fire on us and so we were attacked so all the other gunners and stuff were in heightened alert you know, we're preparing to repel and follow on ambush. So there's a lot going on. So very, there's only, I think, four vehicles in our convoy. And we were the second one in the convoy. Uh, I remember being in the back of the vehicle, uh, being taken there. Our medic uh, started tourniqueting my legs. I had four tourniquets total. And I remember thinking that I was not going to make it. I think I was, I was like, if I do die, I don't want to die uh, uncomfortable. And I still had that vest and helmet on, so I ripped my helmet off and throw it behind me. And I ripped the vest off and throw that off me. Because I remember thinking I'd rather die comfortable because I'm already sweating. And it's probably from the shock. And then I remember there's only three working vehicles. There's a possible complex attack. They're gonna wipe us all out. And so the the main thing that we would do then is call up the QRF, which is you know what I did first one. The local closest unit was like a tank company. So they had Abrams and stuff. And so I remember being in the back of the vehicle and we were preparing for an attack. And one of our captains, a guy named Captain Kieran Polentita, he came running up to me and I knew him from a different unit earlier. So we were just randomly on the same team. He came out to me, he goes, James, are you okay? And I said, Kieran, I'm not doing good. It wasn't me being an, an NCO and him being an officer. I remember talking to him as a man to another man, because at our core, it goes beyond rank. It goes, it goes more of a human love. You don't call officers by their first name ever. And so I, I don't, but it was one of those points where he grabbed my arm, he's above me, says, he says, Joe, you know, James, I got you, brother. Don't worry, we're gonna, we're gonna get you, we're gonna get you out of this. And at around that time, the Abrams tanks come sliding into the area. And you imagine you have like, uh, I don't know how many tons those things are, but they literally slid in on their tracks and then their church started moving around. Basically, it's like Big Brother got into the fight. And w once they came, a lot of us were able to re relax and calm down. But while this was going on for me, everybody was trying to get to Major Rosenberg in the front seat. Again, this was told to me later on by these guys. I didn't know what was going on, didn't even know how bad he was. A lot of people yelling, trying to pry armor off the doors and it, ill quit trying just to get into that vehicle because the blast kind of just molded the metal and it's almost like a Jaws of Life situation that you need to get into.
And so also at that time, they were called medevac. Blackhawk landed and the flight medic or whoever it was come running over to me. And I remember watching war movies when I was younger. And I remember there's always that idiot that's injured and they're trying to help him, but he's freaking out like, help me, help me. You know, like they're causing more of a problem than not. And literally not training. They didn't train us on this, but I remember just putting my arms on my chest to try to control my breathing and to not talk unless somebody talks to me because I'm trying to limit the amount of blood shooting out of me, but also to lower my stress and my heart rate. And so I remember when this flight medic came up to me, the only thing I told him was, be negative, which was my blood type. Your blood I remember type. telling him my blood type. <laughs> because I would rather have him know the freaking fact. I'm not feeling so good, bud. You know, he knows I'm not feeling good. Uh, so <laughs> I just told so I grabbed him by his shirt. I was like, be negative. Gotcha, bro. And then I remember getting on the helicopter and the guy walks in to me and I was like, be negative. I was like, yeah, we got you. Be negative. We don't have be negative, but whatever. We'll put IVs in him. And then I remember also, again, war movies. Is it morphine? Is that a thing? Because I was starting to hurt a lot. And they go, yeah, Thor, we got you. And they, they hit me with it, but it didn't help. At least not for me, because I remember the whole flight not being, I think it just takes the edge off. I think. Because I was still, like, I had a burning sensation on my legs. And that's all I remember is the massive, massive burning feeling. And then my back, my lower right, was burning too. And then when we landed, uh, Major Rosenberg was actually above me. They put him on the stretcher above me on the helicopter. And he was I still alive him. at this point then. I don't know. I thought he was dead because I looked at the color of his skin and it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't good. Because again, you know, you only have like a couple inches above your head to stack the litters. But I remember seeing his arm and it was gray ash. And I remember it didn't look good at all. He was real bad off. But... I remember making it to the emergency room. I remember uh, 18 doctors were surrounding my table doing all the nurses and stuff were doing what they were doing in the military that, you know, they tell us if you know something, tell them, even if you don't, even if it's not a big deal, it's better that they know. And I remember my back hurting. And so I tell one of the doctors that was next to me and I said, Hey, my back hurts real bad on the back. Right. And so they said, okay, on the count of three, everybody was rolling. So they rolled me onto my side and the doctor goes, Oh crap. And so you see him grab a whole bunch of gauze and shove it in my back. There's a big hole that from the blast that came and it ripped a whole bunch of chunk of my back. I mean, but that's not life threatening. Uh, the life threatening is the other stuff. The best I can do is just limit that. I, I had surgery and I came out of it. I was critical condition for a while. They didn't know if I was going to make it or survive the surgery. I remember coming to, and I did two things. First thing is I, Found out my driver, a guy named Anthony Hardy. He was severely injured too. And I said, is Hardy here? Uh, he was a specialist. I was in six. And he goes, yes. And I said, I want to be in the same room with him. Put me in the same room with my guy. And so they did. All the ribs on his right side were broken. His shoulders were broken. His back was broken. I remember seeing him in the truck and he was slumped over the steering wheel. He wasn't moving. Barely could breathe, but he survived also. And so I remember telling Hardy, because I'm a big crap talker, even though I'm jacked up, I just came out of my surgery. I said, hey, Hardy, I bet you I can still outrun your slow ass. And he started laughing. It hurt him. But he told me again later on that he said that uh, it helped a lot, that I was able to find humor in this. And the second thing of note is uh, I demanded a satellite phone so I can contact my wife, the nurse, who's an officer. Again, I'm only non-commissioned. Uh, she goes, no, I don't think it's a good time right now. And I cussed her out. I'm not too proud of it. But I was like, you're going to give me a freaking phone now. 
I don't give a crap what you say, lady. And so they did to calm me down. And so when I called my wife, she was actually on the phone with the army being notified about my injuries. That was her first finding out at the exact same yeah. time. Yeah, the army, a guy named Captain Bibb at the time, he, who I knew, was in notifying her. She was in tears. She was freaking out. She didn't know what bilateral amputee means. We don't know when he's going to call you, you know, if he's even able to. We don't know. Because this is the Fort Carson military, those who didn't deploy. So there, you know how many channels you have to go through just to get, get to the spouse and what's approved, what's not approved to be able to say? And so by by the time the, the the first little information got to the States, I was already out of surgery and I was on a sat phone calling my wife. And I remember saying, I said, hey, I'm okay. I lost both my legs. I'm in a lot of pain. I know I can get legs and I can we can we can we can handle this. And my wife's crying. She goes, Oh my gosh, I'm I'm in shock. And I go, You were in shock. I went to freaking shock. You know, Joe, you went there. And if you ask my wife today, she'll be like, Yeah, she knew he was, I was gonna be okay because you joke about it. I cannot believe number one, how coherent you were for so much of that time. Me too. <laughs> I guess the pain really keeps you awake. Wow. They ever have to put you in a coma? Okay, see, I don't know. Whatever happened in between the, the beginning part of the surgery to when I woke up, I, I have no clue. Do you know how so, many days that was? Was it right uh, after surgery? I, I want to say same day. Uh, so probably no coma. Uh, I mean, again, most of my major injuries were mainly my legs. How long did it take for them to get you back to the States? Uh, pretty quickly. I did a, another surgery, I think, in Germany. And then I remember flying to to Walter Reed and I was in Walter Reed within a couple of days I want to say and the time to fly and to prep me and to keep me stabilized the cool thing is well I, I guess it's cool my brother my older brother was deployed at the same time different unit and so when I got hit and injured they uh, I told my colonel who came to see me in the first hospital and I said sir I said I don't know if it's even possible but my brother Sergeant Jason McCorkle is is in country can I see him or can you bring him to me? He goes, I will move heaven and earth to bring your brother to you. And he did. So by the time I think I got to Germany, they found my brother, found his unit and gave him the right cross message and flew him to Germany to be with me. And then he flew back from Germany to the U.S. to Walter Reed. And he was with my, by my side the whole, the whole way. Your attitude is incredible to me. Wow. He, and I'm wondering was there ever a time where you're feeling sorry for yourself? You don't want to go on. This is useless. Why am I even here? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, it was while I was in Texas because I went from Walter Reed to Texas. And Walter Reed is just basically uh, surgeries every day, uh, what they call debrisment. They're opening me up, taking crap out, trying to fix, mold my leg to be a resemblance of something useful there on. So I was mostly drugged that time. I, I, so there's no time for a pity party for me. But it was when I got to Texas. Uh, and uh, now, and I remember being in a wheelchair for the first time. They gave me a uh, an apartment off post because of my rank, because I was a turning E seven at the time. And so I had my wife and daughter who met me in Walter Reed, and so they stayed with me too. So I remember being in the bathroom one time, staring at the mirror in my wheelchair, and I remember thinking how much I hated the reflection I saw, because I, I realized later on that the guy who put on the uniform and has all these ribbons and medals and you know, all this combat 
crap that I really built myself up mentally. Like I was invincible. I, nothing can ever hurt me. I've been through so much prior to that stuff that would freak out a lot of people and those other deployments. I never even phased me. But the moment that I became weak and, and what I thought useless at the time, I was going to be the next Sergeant Major of the Army. I already knew that. You know, I, I got promoted E7 in like what, eight years, seven, eight years, and which is unheard of. And uh, for a lot, um, for those who are watching, will know what I'm talking about. That's moving fast, way too fast for me, actually, I'll be honest. I remember seeing myself in the mirror, hating who I was, hating that reflection. And I realized there's a big giant hole, like in my soul, basically, um, I couldn't fill. And uh, no matter how much I tried. And I realized that it was because I put myself on such a pedestal and I thought I was so awesome. And then I was so weak and pathetic now. I really hated who I was. And then it kind of it humbled me a lot. And uh, that was a rough transition for me. But did I ever want to end it? No. I think it's because I had a great support structure. Uh, my wife, when I met her at Walter Reed, I was really scared that she would leave me. Not because she's a terrible human being that I would think that, but I actually uh, met a, a burn guy while I was there. And he told me when his wife met him, uh, when he flew back to the States, she dropped the ring off on his bed and said, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. And he was fully burned. And I remember thinking how cold and heartless that person was and how would you, would he ever think she would do that? No, he would, he would, he would defend her to his death, but you don't know what you don't know. And you don't know what you're going to go through. And so I was kind of scared. I knew my wife would be there. I hoped, you know, we've been married for a couple of years. But when she saw me, I remember I was on a stretcher being taken off the plane. I was being brought to Walter Reed where my wife was there waiting for me. And she walked up to me on the stretcher toward the bed. And she says, don't worry, we got this. I got you. Yeah, you know, I will never leave. You know? And I remember knowing that no matter what I go through, I have my wife. And I have a support group. And so I did. Like so many others you're thinking about the other people that were with you when you were hurt. Yeah. Do you have survivor's guilt or did you at all about you surviving and the major not? I, uh, okay, I know survivor guilt is a big deal for a lot of people. And I know we all handle stress and PTSD differently. I'm a caveat for a second, you know, a, a side thought. Like my brother, he's a combat vet and he doesn't like loud noises but I don't give a crap. He doesn't like large groups. I love large groups. I love attention. <laughs> that's, you know, that's, you know, I love that's why you're people. on this podcast to get more um, attention, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. But I, I, I don't have those problems. So I have friends that have it and, and have it heavily. And actually Hardy had that for a long time. He was suicidal for a bit. I remember thinking at the time, I felt like maybe I could have done something better. How did I miss it? But then I let facts overrule. And I started thinking, no, you're facing left. You couldn't see where the bomb was anyway. And it was underneath a T-wall. It was underneath one of those concrete uh, walls that they have. It was buried. I was like, there's no way I could have saw it. And that's what I told Hardy. Uh, well, later on, after you know, uh, I was out and uh, I, I, I met up with them, I said, dude, none of us, no one could have saw that. So no, I guess I have a more cavalier thought about life and death. I know people die. I know people, we have a cycle. You know, we were born, we live, we die. Not everybody's guaranteed a, a long life. And I, I know that Major Rosenberg died serving his country. He fought 
like a true American patriot as a man, as a father. He had two young boys when he passed, a wife. And I remember thinking, I said, I'd rather live my life honoring him and then instead of mourning him. And that's my personal philosophy. And I will never admonish anyone that thinks differently about their experiences. We're all different. So for me, do I have survivor's guilt? Um, no, no, I don't. Do I have pain and suffer? Yeah. Uh, do I have problems with PTSD through this experience? Definitely. But I think it, this experience, even losing my legs and being humbled emotionally, mentally, allowed me to be able to bridge so many more conversations and relationships than I ever did when I was fully embodied. I've been able to counsel people and be counseled in return. I've been able to show support and love to people that I would never have done. So do I think this is the worst thing ever happened in my life? Yeah. Do I think it's one of the best things? Yeah, Wow. I do. Is there anything that you wish maybe the average American would know or understand about the military that they don't? Uh, okay, well, actually, I have a talk coming up that I'm going to be doing for Memorial Day. Oh, cool. Where? Where, so, where are you, what are you doing? Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's the city of Westmoreland. It's a small town. I'm not oh, that's okay. Big. That's cool. Um, but I, in that speech that I'm going to be doing, I talk about how, as Americans, we're desensitized after a couple of decades of war. And so I, I do try to remind people, it's like, we may be moving on with our lives, but there's men and women who are in harm's way every day. And I want to remind them that this freedom that they're enjoying, when they do their barbecue or whatever it is, or party on Memorial Day, that it's not just a holiday to get a new freaking mattress or whatever it is. This holiday is designed to honor those that have given the ultimate sacrifice, who gave away their tomorrow so we can have our today. And so I want to make sure that people realize that millions of people have died for this country. And what we have now is because millions of people's blood was shed uh, and they did not get to live their long lives. They did not get to have their grandchildren that we remember why we have it so good. And it's not because of me, it's because those like Major Rosenberg who gave that sacrifice. I see on your wrist there, Valor Bands, right? Oh no, this is my memorial. Well, it brought up before. Valor Bands. <laughs> what is that? Okay, so, uh, okay, I, I got one. No wonder okay. why your cells are slumping, right? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Being COVID. Okay, no, so uh, long story short, uh, I'll do a quick segue to it. Okay. Uh, I was lost when I got out of the military. I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, again, I was going to be next to major of the Army. So for years, I was kind of my own little pity party wallow. Uh, I had no purpose. I was retired. I mean, I had money coming in from the government, but I, that's not who I am. I was in my mid-20s and I'm retired. So uh, for me, I needed to find a purpose. And so long story short, I met this lady named Amy Cotta. Uh, she had a nonprofit she just started called Memories of Honor. And I promise this will segue right in. Segue right in. You're good. Uh, You're and, good. And it's a nonprofit that honors our fallen service members. So I, when I ran into her booth at a, uh, it was actually at a marathon in Nashville, not me running, my kids were running the kids mile. So I, when a veteran sees like these veteran style type booths, we are automatically going to assume that they're scammer or a piece of crap. And so I asked a lot of tough questions to the lady. I was like, did you serve? You know, why are you, what are you doing? Are you trying to take money? What's the goal of your organization? And I found out that it's all free. And what she does, she gives out memorial bibs for runners to honor a fallen service member. And I was like, oh, hot damn, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, she's like, we just want to honor the goals of our families and make sure that their loved ones are never forgotten. So I volunteered for that organization. And then, I don't know, a couple, like a year, 
so into it as a volunteer, low-level peon. Uh, she made me a board member and the director of veteran outreach. And then she told me about this product thing she was working on because she's a military mom. And prior to meeting me, she actually put it to the wayside because she had a nonprofit to run. You can't run a for-profit business and a nonprofit at the same time all by yourself. She only took care of the one that she was more interested in. And so she said, hey, remember those bracelets I was telling you about? You know, I took the donated uniforms from my friends, you know, and then I made some bracelets and stuff out of them. Uh, I was like, yeah, you know, I thought that was a cool concept. Basically, the idea is people donate their uniforms from the men and women who serve, and then we get their story. And so each of these valor bands, so I have an example right here. It's, okay, you can't see all of it because of the dang background. But you can see an old uniform, leather. Oh, yeah. And so, sorry. Um, so the concept is, is that when our friends and family, when we know our story, what we do is we share their story in their, their uniform all across the world. So other people can read a little snippet about who they are and what they did. And so I was like, hey, no, I love that idea. I love that concept. And I think with development, it could be something pretty big, pretty cool. And so she asked me to partner with her. She said, hey, would you mind kind of taking more of a backseat role where I'm still the director of veteran outreach and board member, but I don't have to go to every meeting. I don't have to do every event. Let's grow this because the, the purpose of this company is to help fund the nonprofit. This is a, not just a for-profit, it's actually called a social enterprise, which it means it's a for-profit company with social good. Something about it is to help. That's what wearable gratitude is. We make products like Valor Bands, Valor Bags, we make dog collars, we have t-shirts. And what we do is our goal is to make sure that these uniforms, these uniforms do not go in the landfill. Billions of pounds of textiles are thrown away every year. So we're trying to do the good on the environment side. Then we also want to get these stories and turn these old uniforms uh, that would be thrown away. We turn them into something cool. And then we also get to share their story. But we also have an initiative where only veterans or their family members sew these things. So we pay them to make them large portion of the profit goes back to Memories of Honor to help fund that mission. What are those two websites then? Are there two of them? Hmm. Yeah, the first one's memoriesofhonor.org and wearablegratitude.com. And where else can we find you on social media? Sure. Uh, I'm on uh, Instagram and I'm on Facebook uh, and I'm on Twitter, but I don't really use Twitter, so don't go there. But it's SFC Joseph James. So it's at SFC Joseph James. You can just Google that and you'll find me. One of the things I do is I'm also an adaptive athlete. So I do a lot of obstacle courses. I did the Marine Corps Marathons, the first uh, event I ever did. I hand cycled it. And actually, you met Matt Bradford. Yes. Uh, I, I, know, I knew him through the Center for the Intrepid in Texas. And he's also uh, one of the honorees through an organization we both go through. So uh, he's an outstanding, amazing service member for a Marine, that is. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, he, he's an incredible guy, isn't he? Oh my goodness. Yep. Wow, you all are though. What does America mean to you? Oh, okay. So I wanted to have like a really cool answer to that. Like, what is America? And be deeply philosophical. And I kind of only one word kept coming back out to me is opportunity. I think as Americans, we all have an opportunity to do something great. Either uh, raise a family, you know, or, or start a company. To, it's that whole idea of the American dream, but for everybody. And so I would say America is kind of the example of that light in the world. 
that if, if you want to do something, if you work hard enough and you have the right sets and skill set, you can accomplish uh, many great things in this country. And I think the heart of what is happening to our country is suffering. I think people are forgetting how good we have it nowadays. And I know I grew up poor. I promise you, I grew up in a food bank and I lived in the back of a camper and the back of a truck. I'm the poorest you could ever live. And I know it's hard to get out of that situation, but I think people forget that how rich our country really is. Our poorest of our poor are still getting fed. We are. Um, not many people do die from starvation. It does happen, but not many. But there are many countries in this world that our poorest of the poor, even what we make off welfare, is more than they'll see in a year. And there are many children and many people who are dying from starvation and they can't even get the basic necessities. So I always want to remind people, as bad as we think we have it, we are princes and princesses in the world compared to the majority of it. And I think if we can start recentering ourselves when it comes to where we are at and not compare ourselves with the richest of Americans, but compare our poorest to their to the poorest riches, uh, we are far and away better off. And I want to remind people that. So as bad as we think we have it, it's nowhere close to some of these worlds that I've been to where that girl who lost her arm, who lost her hand in that fire, she won't even be able to go to a hospital. But yet our poorest of our poor can go to an emergency room and not even have to pay a bill. So I just want to remind people that. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Tina. I appreciate you. I'm always taken aback by the honesty that my guests share with me on this podcast. And Joe was no exception. Joe, I thank you for your raw honesty, sharing stories that aren't pleasant, but that we as Americans need to hear so we understand better the sacrifices that our military go through on our behalf. Joe, you are a courageous, patriotic soul, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you again for listening to We the People, Our American Story podcast. Do me a big favor, leave a rating, leave a review. Please subscribe, share with your family and friends. These stories are incredibly important. And now more than ever, we need to make sure as many Americans as possible hear these stories and understand the blessings that we have of calling America home. Next week, my guest is one of the elite five, one of the only five surviving quadruple amputees, Todd Nicely. See you on Friday.